Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 4, and this is some kind of passage. Um, again, I, I preface this by saying there is a blessing in studying Revelation, right? That's from the, the word itself. Uh, those who hear and heed. It's not just a hearing, but it's an understanding and a submitting to the words of this prophecy. This is prophetic. And chapter 4 and on, we're getting into prophecy. We're getting into things that have not yet happened. And as a result, uh, the very first words of chapter 4, verse 1 are, after these things. After what things? After the things that have just been said. If you remember the outline of this uh, book, it is the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will be. And we're getting into the will-be moments. We're getting into the future aspect of things, prophetically speaking. The things that are, are the church age. It's the letters to the churches. And so I think that's pretty important as we begin this particular section of Scripture within Revelation. I remember when I was growing up, uh, my great-grandmother, she lived down in Philadelphia. And uh, I've got a love-hate relationship with Philadelphia because of the Eagles and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I loved going down and visiting great-grandma. We called her Nana. And we'd go down there, and I remember, I think I was about seven years old or something like that. We were sitting on her couch, and she had brought us cookies, and she had brought us something to drink, and my brother and I were trying to stay still and behave. And she began to talk about airplanes. And I'll never forget the way she told it, the way she described seeing the very first airplane in her life flying over the city of Philadelphia. Now think about that. That's incredible. I'm not that old, folks. Come on now. You know, yeah, I'm not that old. But great-grandma had seen the very first plane fly over Philadelphia. And I remember watching her face as she just tried to explain the emotions and the feelings and the expression of awe and wonder at this machine that had never, she had never seen before. Well, in a very, very small way, when we begin to talk about Revelation chapter 4, John is, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to express something that he has seen in a way that how do you express heaven? How do you express the throne room of God? How do you express this awesome, amazing experience of something that is more realistic than anything that we have experienced and or seen here on this earth. There's a greater reality, and it is heaven. <laughs> we, we get so caught up in the material, but the spiritual is actually a greater reality than the physical, if I could put it that way. And one of the things that I hope that you come out of with this particular time together is that whatever you're going through, no matter what you face, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you may face, don't ever forget that God is on his throne. Anything over your head is still under what? His feet. Think about that. When we begin to talk about heaven, there's three things I want to share with you this morning. First of all, the reality of God. I think sometimes we absolutely forget this. God is real. God is intimately acquainted with everything that we're going through. He's intimately acquainted with all the events that are transpiring on this earth right now. 
He knows about the terrorists. He understands what needs to be done. He knows how to maneuver all of these circumstances in order to bring about his purposes, which are for his glory. And friend, he is doing that actively right now because he's in control. He's the Lord. He's in charge. But secondly, there's the reign of God. And when we think about how God reigns from his throne and we think about this picture that is given to us in Revelation chapter 4 and how John depicts it, there is coming judgment. There is coming judgment. And God is absolutely sovereign over this. And then, of course, chapter 4, how can we neglect the response to God? The fact that he exists, the fact that he reigns, ought to cause us to fall on our faces before a living, holy, sovereign God to recognize that God is over all. He's supreme. And how are we living our lives day by day, worshiping, worshiping the Lord in every area, in every moment, with every fiber of our being? Well, the first part of this, Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, the reality of God, John's vision of God on the throne, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Wow. Can you imagine? Remember where, where John is? He's on the island of Patmos. He's, he's been enslaved. He's been imprisoned, in effect. He's been put into exile on this island. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord gives him the messages to the churches. And now we begin to get into chapter 4 where he is told to come up here. A door is open for him to come into the very throne room of God Almighty. What an amazing moment. Now, let me just kind of unpack this a little bit. Some would suggest that this is the picture of the rapture of the church, and it may well be, folks. I'm not going to get into all the, uh, the arguments about this kind of stuff. I, I'm telling you, if you want to be wrong, it's okay. You go right ahead. You're free in that perspective. But I don't know that this is really a picture of the rapture of the church. I think if you take this literally and you take this for what it says, it is simply an invitation, in effect a command for John to come into the throne room of God. I know that the trumpet's there. Somebody already said it to me this morning. It's the trumpet. It's the tr I know, but there's many trumpets. And we're going to look at that as we move through Revelation. I think the picture here is of John being brought up into the heavens in order to enter into the very throne room of God. And in the spirit, he's standing in heaven where he sees God, the Father, on the throne. Now, when we begin to look at this, he says, after these things, and I've alluded to this, chapter 1, verse 19, he show, I will show you what must take place after these things. I think that is very essential. In other words, it's after what things? It's after the things that were said to the churches. And so there's this moment where well, I would suggest 
that we are going to see the 24 elders as depicting the church in heaven already. And as a result, what we're talking about is a period of time after the church age. It's not that people don't get saved during the tribulation, the great tribulation, or any of those things, but we're talking about the church age, and we're talking about a period of time within the context of Revelation that is after the things said to the churches, after these things. I think it's important as we begin to think through this that John is seeing the 24 elders who do, I believe, depict or represent the church, and they are already there. I think that's important because I think the indication is the rapture has already taken place. And we're going to look at this again in this next section but because of the Stephanos crowns that they have, because of their uh, garments of white, there is a picture that the Bema seat or the judgment seat of the works of the believers has also already taken place from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But God on his throne. Think about John being called into the very throne room of God. Where he says there's one sitting on a throne. Folks, don't miss that. Don't miss that. What are you going through right now? Where in the midst of it, perhaps you've gotten your eyes onto the circumstances instead of keeping your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ himself, on God Almighty, and remembering and being reminded and walking in the truth and the reality that God is on his throne. But we don't know why the Lord allows certain things but we do know that he's sovereign and that he's promised for those who love him to bring good out of them. What are you going through right now? That maybe this morning you need to be recalibrated in your view. You need to have your eyes lifted up to once again see what even David read out of Isaiah, that the Lord is sitting on his throne and the train of his robe fills the whole earth, fills the temple and the whole earth is filled with his what? His glory, the truth and the reality of who he is. At what moment do we believe and or are we persuaded that the things of this world are more powerful than the things of God? Because at that moment, <laughs> we need revival. We need revival. John sees the throne room of God. Well, in verses 3 and following, we have the reign of God. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Well, the throne and the one sitting on it, I believe, is the Father. If you glance over at chapter 5, verse 7, we see that the, the Lamb is taking the scroll from the hand of the one who is on the throne, and therefore, I believe, it is the Father who is on the throne. What's interesting is that the colors that are given, jasper and sardis, 
Jasper is a clear stone and it reflects perhaps the purity of God Almighty. Or Sardis, which is red, reflecting perhaps the redemption that God through Christ has provided for humanity. The rainbow around the throne or the emerald, the green, the glory of God being depicted, the grace of God, because you remember the promise that God gave with the rainbow that he would never destroy the earth again by what? By water. But it's interesting too because the stones and the names given First of all, each of the 12 tribes of Israel have a representative stone. Jasper's stone is the first stone reflecting the tribe of Reuben, who is the firstborn of Israel. And Reuben, the name, means, behold, a son. And Sardis is representing the last tribe, which is Benjamin. And Benjamin means, son of my right hand. Therefore, I believe the two stones encompass all the other stones, like a bookend of all the other stones or the tribes of Israel, indicating the first and the last, indicating Christ as the firstborn, as well as the one at the right hand of authority and power of the Father. But don't miss this. Because in the midst of this, in the midst of the grace of this rainbow, in the midst of this uh, color and these stones that John sees and, and the recognition of the Father on the throne, understand that there is thunder and flashes of lightning coming from the throne indicating coming judgment. It is not just that God has had grace or that God is revealing grace. It is also that in the midst of this, there is judgment that is about to come. Well, then there's a picture of the 24 elders on their thrones surrounding the throne of God. There's the seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, which depicts the Holy Spirit himself. And then, of course, the four living creatures, which I believe depict in many ways Christ himself. Walverd says this, the person whom John sees on the throne looking like a jasper and sardine stone is therefore God in relation to the nation Israel. What's the significance of that? Well, I believe John is called up. He sees the church, the 24 elders there. He recognizes the awesome sovereignty of the Lord God Almighty in the midst of this, and the vision that he is given is one of judgment coming of the God who is the God of Israel. Because if you go back to Daniel's 70th week, we know that the tribulation or the great tribulation, the seven-year period of time, is for the nation of Israel. And God is about to bring judgment on this earth in an unbelievable, unprecedented way. And he's about to restore the nation of Israel, whom he is the Lord of, to himself. Well, the response to God. The 24 elders, the living creatures, are there worshiping. I think it's absolutely amazing that in the midst of this vision that John has given, the activity that is taking place within the very throne room of God is what? It is worship. It is worship. 
Let's talk about the 24 elders for a moment. Verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. (laughs) There's all kinds of ideas about who these 24 elders are. Some say they're angels, and I really disagree with that, because later in Revelation we see uh, that there is a separation between the angels and the elders. So I, I, I don't see how these could be angels. And some would say that 12 of them may be representative of the tribes of Israel and 12 of them may be represented uh, of the church. And that very well may be. That may be. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 1 through 19, I would encourage you to go and, and read this at some particular point. I think the indication is this is a reflection of the priesthood of the church in the sense of what God was doing with the Levites in 1 Chronicles where there were 24 divisions of the Levites indicating the fullness of the Levitical priesthood. So too, now with the 24 elders, there is a picture of fullness, of completeness. They are sitting down. These are facts. They're called elders. There's 24 of them. They're sitting down on thrones around the throne of God. They are dressed in white. They have golden crowns, which are the crowns depicting a victor. There's two different words for crowns. This is the word Stephanos. Every time you see Stephanie, my wife, that's where she gets her name. She's a crown. And I love that picture because in many ways, that's exactly what she's like. She's beautiful, lovely, gracious, all those things. And when you see this word uh, crown, think Stephanos, just think Stephanie, and you'll get it. You you got it. (laughs) What do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne. In verse 11, we're told that they worship God, not just once, but continuously, continuously. In chapter 5, and we'll get there in a couple weeks, but he, obviously, an elder comes. He's able to speak, so the elders are able to speak. They held harps and gold, golden bowls of incense, which are the, the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, which means qualitatively brand new, of praise for the Lamb's redemption. You can see that in verses 8 and verse 9. There are many views on this, like I said. But I believe these are elders representing the church. First of all, they're clothed in white, indicating salvation. And if you go back to the immediate context of Revelation and to the messages to the churches themselves in chapter 3, verse 5, we're told the overcomers will be given a robe of white. They're wearing white, indicating not only their salvation, but their faithfulness, the fact that they have overcome, the fact that they have walked in faithfulness with the Lamb. They are overcomers. They sing a new song concerning salvation, and as a result, there's this tremendous orchestration of praise and glory to the Lamb for what He has accomplished through the cross, through the resurrection, for the church in particular. They have victor's wreaths. Because they've overcome, they have these Stephanos crowns because they have overcome. This was also promised to the church, uh, churches in 
chapter 3, verse 11, where it says to make sure that no one takes your crown. In other words, keep walking faithfully with me so as to be rewarded. And so there's a picture here of faithfulness, of walking with the Lord. Again, all of these in the immediate context come directly out of the messages to the churches, which is why I believe these 24 elders, as a, as a sense of completion, depicting the church already in the very throne room of God. And if it's true that they're already in the throne room of God, which we know that's a fact, but if it's true that they are depicting the church, then the rapture at this point has already taken place as well as the Bema Seat of Christ, which we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the rewards that are given that have been promised to those who are faithful who will overcome. What a beautiful picture this really is. The living creatures are fascinating. David read a little bit out of Isaiah. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 1 and you read through verses 4 through 21, you get this amazing picture of the seraphim. How many of you have ever thought of uh, angels as fat little cherubs sitting on a cloud strumming some kind of little harp with little wings fluttering, kind of a cupid moment? Come on. Nobody wants to raise their hand, but you know what? There you go. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> At least you're honest, man. We've all thought that. I mean, I, at some point in time, we see all these little things and people worship these. Hey, listen, folks. If a seraphim showed up right now and was revealed to us, all of us, I don't care whether you've got head knee surgery or not, you'd be on the floor. You'd be on the floor. There'd be panic. These are amazing creatures. Amazing creatures that depict the holiness of God. When we talk about the seraphim, we talk about the, the living creatures, we talk about those around the throne of God. Again, there's this picture of awesomeness, of holiness, of worship, of grandeur at a level that we have never experienced. Verse 6, the second part of it, it says, In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Well, some facts. In the center and in the round, the throne, these four living creatures are said to be. They are full of eyes in front and behind and even within. All the creatures had six wings with eyes. The living creatures appear to be the seraphim, as I said in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 and following. And if you read through this, Ezekiel gives even more of a picture of what these creatures look like. The first creature is said to have a face like that of a lion, the second like a calf, the third the face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. There's many different thoughts and ideas of what these uh, perhaps are represented to be. I believe uh, ultimately that this is a picture of Christ himself seen in the Gospels. You begin to go through the Gospels, Matthew, the lion, 
the royal lineage of Christ himself, or Mark, the calf, the servant. Luke, the man, the son of man, the son of man. Or John, the eagle, the deity of Christ, the son of God. In the midst of all of this, you have 24 elders that are on their thrones. You have the living creatures that are around and within the throne of God himself. You have God with this Jasper and Sardis appearance. John is called into this. You see the church being represented, worshiping, the living creatures worshiping. I can only imagine what was going through John's mind and just how he was responding to this. In verse 8, the second part of verse 8 in Revelation 4 and following, it says this, Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Wow. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Holy means set apart. Unique to himself. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of adoration. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal. He is the self-existent God who is supreme and sovereign over all the affairs of this earth, this universe. And he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he created all things and because of his will. Because he chose to create them. They existed And have been created. And we know that he holds all things together by the word of his power. The Logos, Christ himself. When we talk about worthy, we're talking about measuring up and being found equal in value and in worth. It is right to ascribe worthiness, holiness, goodness, and glory to God. Because he is deserving of it. And he's deserving of it alone. It is right To give him glory because his true identity and the reality of who he is is that he is supreme and he is sovereign over all things. To give him honor, to give him respect, to give him power, meaning he has the ability to do that which is good at all times for whatever he chooses and for for whatever reasons why he chooses to do so because he's good. And he has the right and the authority and the might to accomplish it. When we talk about the Lord God, we talk about this vision that John has been given in the throne room of God. Words fail. Words fail. It's impossible to put into words all the emotion, all the sensory perspectives of everything that John would have experienced in this. But suffice it to say, 
that God exists and that he reigns from his throne and that he is worthy of our worship. How are we practicing the presence of God daily, moment by moment in our lives? Every moment, every day. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care when you're doing it. I don't care for whatever reason. What is it? That, how are you practicing the presence of God in your life? It's been said that what you are when you're alone is what you are. How do you practice the presence of God when nobody else is around? Because do you understand that God is on his throne and that the greater reality is spiritual things and that he sees all, he knows all, he is sovereign over all? How are we day by day yielding to the Lord? How are we ascribing to him what is rightfully due him, which is our worship? How are we saying, Lord, here's our lives. Use them in whatever way we choose. See, when we talk about material things, how do we look at our finances? How do we look at all of that, our material stuff, and simply acknowledge that it actually belongs to God? What about our time? Is it our time or is it his time? And are we willing to say, Lord, use it in whatever way you choose? What about our lives? What about our desires, our wishes, the things that we wanna see happen, the things that we wanna kinda of participate in? Are we willing to lay that down and give it to the Lord because he alone is worthy of honor? He alone is worthy of glory and power. Are we willing to say, Lord, it's, it's all yours. We exist for you because you created all things and by your will they have been created. What's going on in our lives that somehow we've been defeated by or that we're frustrated by or we wish would change and in the midst of it we have <laughs> neglected or forgotten the reality that God is over those things. It's not that all the things are good or all the things are going the way that we would hope that they would uh, uh, go or, or somehow that maybe even all the things that are happening in our lives we would say are good, but we know that God is sovereign over it. We know that God has a plan through it and God has promised to us who love him that he will bring good out of it. And how with an attitude of worship are we saying to the Lord who is the Lord God Almighty who is worthy of our worship, who's worthy of our lives that in everything, Lord, my life is yours. Whatever you choose to do is fine because you're seated on your throne and I'm your servant. How are we living our lives where people see that reality in and through us, where we have the privilege of sharing with them the hope that we have in Christ because of what he did for us, that they too can be saved and have hope and walk with God through the power of the Holy Spirit and through Christ himself so as to grow in Christ, to be transformed to recognize that heaven is a true reality and a hope that all of us as believers have the privilege of experiencing. I don't know how to put this into words. I don't know how to illustrate this from an earthly perspective. The closest thing I could come to is Switzerland, honestly. Sorry. 
I love America, but Switzerland is an amazing place, and I've been there, and I've seen the mountains. I can remember as a little kid going and visiting my family up in Hopkern, which overlooks Interlaken. And if you know anything about Switzerland, Interlaken is a city that's between two lakes, and where my family lives and where my roots are ultimately from, you overlook Lake Thun, and you look straight at the Jungfrau, uh, the Eiger, and the Munch, and you can see the reflection of those mountains in Lake Thun when there's no clouds and when it's clear and you're up on the mountain top and you can look down and see Interlaken and you can see Lake Thun, you can see the mountains. It's majestic. I remember as an eight-year-old kid stopping on the driveway, which was a gravel driveway, to where there was a chalet that my family owns there and I was able to look out over and I thought to myself, They wake up every day looking at this. Eight years old. And it was awe-inspiring. To this day, when I look at pictures, they don't even begin to do it justice. When I look at at certain snapshots, and I think, oh, no, no. I try to show Jonathan, and Holland, thank the Lord, has been able to be there for a little bit. Jonathan, one of these days, i got to get him over there. But I, I show them pictures, and there's no way to express the majesty of the glory of God's creation in that place. I can't tell them, look at this picture, and and boy, the smell is just amazing because it's alpine air. Or I can't tell them, look at this picture, and you get a feel for the air and the cleanness of it. Or or look at this, and you can can fill in the blank. Can't do that. you got to be there to experience it. Folks, do you realize one day we're going to be there? We're going to experience this. John is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a picture of something that is phenomenal. It goes beyond human ability to comprehend and think and express. But do you realize that every day of our lives as believers, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Christ and being able to experience his life, which is life itself, which he talks about in John 17. To know Christ, to know God, which is life, which is eternal life, every day to experience something that literally is otherworldly. How are we walking in light of that? How are we getting caught up in the mundane? How are we getting caught up in all the silliness of this earth and our petty little problems, whatever they may be? How are we having our eyes directed to the one who's on his throne and who's sovereign and above all things? How are we walking with him day by day, moment by moment? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 